This episode is brought to you by Knowing Hospitality, a full-service hotel management company that has developed a simple and straightforward management fee based on profit, not revenue. If you're a hotel owner that believes in a new way of doing business and want to learn more about the benefits of a profit-based management agreement, visit knowinghospitality.com. Now let's get to the podcast. There was a time when that was really effective in the restaurant and the food and beverage world for hotels, where it's like, let's create a one size fits all. Let's create a thing that will make everybody generally okay, happy or whatever. Um, but we're, we're way past that time now where there's so much competition. There's so many opportunities and so many brands and experiences out there that the one size fits all is just a flop. It always will be. Welcome to the Proven Principles Podcast, the show that deconstructs the inner workings of the hospitality industry, breaking down the tools, tips, and tricks that the world's best-run hotels use every day. Here's your host, Adam Knight. My guest today is Joseph Zala. He's the Managing Director at Vigor, a restaurant branding and marketing agency based in Atlanta. Hotel F&B can be a puzzle. Declining capture rates, downward pressure on menu prices, and lack of investment in the interior design have ensured that most hotel restaurants remain uncompetitive guest amenities rather than inspired destinations that draw in guests and surrounding locals. The last 18 months has demanded rethinking and reevaluation of every aspect of the hospitality industry, and your hotel restaurant is certainly in that bucket. But with limited resources and in many cases, lack of desire, knowing where to start can be so difficult that it actually limits any forward progress. On this episode, Joseph brings some best practices and philosophies from the independent restaurant world that will undoubtedly help you prioritize your long list of tasks when trying to reinvent your hotel restaurant. So let's get to it. This is episode 62 of the Proven Principles podcast, Joseph Zala on rethinking hotel F&B. Enjoy. Joseph, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? What's your connection to the industry? Yeah. Uh, well, I founded uh, an agency that focuses on restaurant branding and marketing back in 2003 um, and built that to, I think, have some sort of notoriety or at least repute uh, where we've been able to work with over 250 concepts of all different sizes from startup through uh, growth, through evolution um, and the whole gamut. Um, and throughout that time, I've amassed a lot of experience and expertise along the way from reading and doing and interacting. Yeah. Um, did you come up through the food and beverage side of the business or was this always a goal of yours to open, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a branding, uh, agency? Yeah. Um, I spent a significant amount of time in a, in a small, uh, franchised concept called big apple bagels. So, uh, it was my first job. I was 15 and I worked there for about three and a half, four years and worked my way from mopping the floors to managing the stores and um, got a little taste of everything along the way, including how to make the bagels and operations. And I think during that, I developed a love for uh, the industry, but also an understanding that I, I didn't want to be in it in that capacity. Um, <laughs> it's smart. It's very smart. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, that that kind of sparked into that whole, like, what do I want to do when I grow up? And then, uh, I, I fell into design. I didn't realize it was a thing actually. And, um, ended up going to design school and then business just learned business along the way. Um, I started Vigor back when I was young and knew everything, mm -hmm. um, learned 
more recently that didn't know anything at all, but uh, <laughs> at least you had the, the chutzpah to did it, do it back then, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny how many people say that, you know, you get into it, you think you know everything and 20 years later you realize, oh, I'm still learning and, and <laughs> getting my feet wet and all that. Yeah. Um, as someone who has been working with um, owners, managers in spe- specifically the food and beverage side of the industry uh, for well, 20 or so years, but certainly in the last 18 months, I mean, we all know the stories about what happened to restaurants and this is true across the country to varying degrees. Um, this show is more focused on the hotel side of mm-hmm. the hospitality industry, but you know, I can tell you from experience, hotel restaurants in the best of times make little to no money. Uh, it's very yeah. difficult, even if you have a destination restaurant in a luxury hotel to get people to come in. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I want to get, just get your thoughts about how should we be thinking about food and beverage and even hotel food and beverage right now, given what we've just been dealing with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously before the pandemic, I feel like the, you know, some of the major players like Marriott and IHG were really stumping for innovative experiences uh, on par, if not better than something you'd find in Europe. And then, I mean, Asia has been killing it for a while. Um, you know, and I think there's some reasons why uh, there's obviously cultural shifts where I think in, in we'll just say the American market, we've sort of trained people to think as of hotel food and beverage outlets as not that great mm-hmm. um, as uh, the place that you go because you have to or out of convenience, but not really a place you'd stroll into off of the street if you were um, a local or visiting a place and were a more of a wanderluster. Um, and it's a shame because I think there's a lot of places out there that have really killed it. And so some have risen to the top. There are some notable restaurant experiences that are in hotels. And I, th- I think that magic moment um, and what Marriott and IHG were really tap into were uh, something that doesn't look like it's part of the hotel. It looks like somebody put this whole unique moment inside of a building that happened to be a hotel. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, I think, the, the really big goal. But then, of course, uh, here's what we get into and the pandemic hit, um, which <laughs> I feel like we've all said 30 million times in the mm-hmm. last year. Um, and while we could really like dig into the nuances of what the pandemic did, I think the broader stroke is the pandemic exacerbated weaknesses that already existed. Um, there, there was no fooling anybody anymore. Um, and so the brands and, and the, the leaders who were able to pivot and look at the F and B offering through a new lens, um, dare to ask why and what if, uh, I think not only survived, but found a path forward. Mm-hmm. And so there's a number of things that I think affect the industry negatively. And that is, it has to be a full service restaurant. Why? Why? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, look at the, um, you know, you need to like evaluate the guests and the type of guests you're bringing in as well as the market. And if there are, you know, 300 full service restaurants that are knocking it out of the park, does that area really need another one? And do your guests need it? Right. You know, so I think questions like that should have been asked long before. And, um, I think what's really what I have always found frustrating is even to this day, a lot of folks treat the F and B outlet as at worst a necessary evil, at best as a, oh, this could be something nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but never really treated with the, I think, the seriousness that a restaurant needs to be treated with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, there's a lot that goes into that. I think you bring up a good point. Why do you need a full service restaurant in a hotel? Um, and I can tell you that, you know, most of the conversation for many years has just gone around wanting to make sure that you had enough services and offerings in the property to appeal to as many people as might want the thing that you're providing. Uh, and, and that's true of just about every service in a hotel. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, many of them don't get used enough to warrant the fact that they're there. F&B is no different. Um, you've got the three meal a day thing, you know, where you want to make sure that you're getting people for breakfast before they head out, you know, for the day. And then mm-hmm. your capture ratio just steadily drops throughout the day from breakfast to lunch to dinner. So a lot of hotels try to figure out, well, you know, we'll be open for breakfast close for lunch and then reopen for dinner or breakfast and lunch and close for dinner. And you sort of, you do this math in your head. And, um, uh, and I think, you know, some people have executed on that. Okay. But operationally staffing wise, that's also very difficult to manage. Um, that sort of service, service time for four or five hours, shut down in the middle of the day and then service time for four or five hours in the evening. And then you're done. It's really hard to get staff and manage that. Um, I just think to your point, there's a lot of, um, there might be some operational efficiencies that have been driving the decision to have the amenity for the guest. Mm-hmm. Whereas you got to flip it and you got to think, well, is it even worth having this in the first place and risk making some guests unhappy because you don't have it? Right. Yeah. And I think just even to add on to it is you, you mentioned, uh, you know, it's um, about making as many people as happy as possible. Um, but no truer words have been said in that it's it's basically making uh, the right amount of discomfort <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> so um, th- you'll have to look this up. But uh, back a long time ago, before I think uh, uh, the Second World War or during, w- there were a lot of deaths because there was a rigid seat in airplanes. The seat hmm. was where the seat was. So if you were a shorter gentleman, um, and back then you were a gentleman, you know mm-hmm. that they didn't have ladies in the army uh, or or the air force for that matter. Um, so if you're a little bit shorter, man, you, you had to reach. And if you were taller, your knees were at your ears and huh. this was causing a lot of issues. So they invented this, uh, the, the sliding mechanism to push you closer and yada, yada. And so that's very good. But, but I feel like there was a time when that was really effective in the restaurant and the food and beverage world for hotels, where it's like, let's create a one size fits all. Let's create a thing that will make everybody generally okay, happy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're way past that time now where there's so much competition. There's so many opportunities and so many brands and experiences out there that the one size fits all is just a flop. It always will be yeah. um, moving forward. And I think that's the biggest pain point is it requires commitment and a bit of risk um, to basically say, no, we're not going to have a hamburger or a chicken sandwich or a club, a turkey club. God forbid we don't have a turkey club mm-hmm. on the menu for this restaurant. And instead, we're going to commit to barbecue, you know, and, right. you know, or Mexican or, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to niche in there and we're going to really own it. Um, it's really uncomfortable, especially for hospitality companies where that's just not in their DNA. Oh my God. I can think about some of the hotels that I've worked in in the past where you might have a, a thousand, fifteen hundred square foot restaurant. And, you know, it's not designed at all to, to go, I mean, it's designed for, you know, Mother's Day and Easter and Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and Christmas, uh, with, you know, your odd business travelers showing up for breakfast and, and dinner. Uh, it doesn't have the fee- the look, the feel, 
the FF&E, the, 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 the expertise in the back of house to be able to do, or the desire maybe to do it in the back of house. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the risk of just keeping a 1500 square foot restaurant closed and dark at one end of your hotel, that also sort of plays psychologically, not just into like, you know, the people that own the building, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, managing it too. It can be weird having guests walk by this totally dark section of your hotel, you know, perpetually, like forever. Right. Um, and so when you're, when you're thinking about, when you're thinking about a, uh, a concept shift, a complete departure from the way that restaurants have done it in the past. Is there anything that you work with or you, you discuss with the restaurant owners that you work with now to maybe help them get over the hump and think about this departure in a different way, not in a negative way? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think by the very nature of our process of developing strategies, one of the things we say is an, a good output is it makes innovation more comfortable because that's essentially the burial, barrier. When you are innovating, truly innovating, ooh, it is really uncomfortable. It feels very risky um, and, and it should feel new and uh, new isn't good. People are comfortable with what they know or at least derivative of what they know. Um, it's why you see a lot of Me Too stuff. It's in, and not the movement, but the um, you know emulation. You see a mm-hmm. lot of emulation out there, um, because there there is proof that it has worked somewhere. Or folks are just quite, you know, unimaginative, and therefore they <laughs> beg, borrow, steal, which we all do to a certain extent, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but with knowledge and data comes power, and I, and I and I that that is super super true in this sense. So when you start to understand who your core patrons are. And, and we use the word patrons at Vigor because I notoriously dislike um, the the target, the word target, mm. and all the other violent terms that happen to inch their way into marketing. Uh, <laughs> campaigns, you know, these are all war terms. Um, yeah. And we're supposed to be friends with these folks. So we, we want to foster patronage. And I think that starts by understanding who your core group is, which is a combination of uh, prevalence in market, as well as in the hotel space, prevalence of uh, guests, you know, who are they uh, in mass mixed with, are they primed to love this, this type of brand, this type of experience mixed with, are they the type of folks who are going to promote it heavily? And mm. so when you get those three P's together, you actually find a really great uh, group of folks to talk about and or to talk to, to speak to and communicate with. Um, and newsflash, they might not be the most uh, the, the most uh, prevalent group of people that come to your hotel. Hmm. It has to be a mix of those three. So for instance, if you have a road warrior salesperson that happens, you know, that's the kind of people that come to your, your hotel the most, they may not be the kind of people that are going to promote it. And they may not be primed to really love it because they may just be like, I want a burger, dude, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it's yeah. like, well, we, we're not making burgers here. Um, but I think what's, what's great about that too, is more and more of uh, the bigger box brands are putting out niche Hotel brands like mm-hmm. an even hotels, like a Moxie, um, and I'm blanking on the one that uh, just was released. I want to say from IHG, it was a, it's mm-hmm. a luxury brand that they just launched. Um, and I think with that niche comes uh, an easier way to say, "Hey, we are not for everyone as a hotel, and therefore we are not for everyone as a restaurant brand uh, in this space." Mm-hmm. And that starts to at least support some of that thinking. Um, yeah. But with a good strategy backed by research and data, it should start to actually come together that, wow, 
not only can you have something that's going to rock and roll in this hotel space, but it's also going to rock and roll in the local area as a, as an option. You see, and you bring up a really good point because I think forever up until the start of the pandemic, we in the hotel business have not done a very good job of engaging the people around the building. Our focus is always internal. It's almost never external it, mm-hmm. with the exception of the special event days when you're just trying to get locals in for, for Mother's Day or Easter. Yeah. Um, that shift to looking to, to saying, okay, so we've got, you know, 100, 200, 400 rooms in this hotel. We, we have a captive audience. They're, they're here already. They're probably going to go out and try restaurants. If they're there for multiple nights, they're definitely going to go out and try other, right. um, other venues in the city around, around the hotel. But, you know, you'll probably get them for one or two meals. Um, but that business is so seasonal in most of the country where, you're going to have periods in the year, many periods, in fact, where your hotel may be running, you know, in the good times at 20 or 30%. You need to look outside to get people in to your restaurants. You can't just survive on, on that in-house capture. Yeah. So you bring up a really good point about if there's that F&B director or restaurant manager right now in a hotel trying to figure out how do I fix this ailing restaurant, you have to look outside the four walls. Absolutely. And, and you need to, <clears throat> pardon me, you need to consider that, that consumer journey, that, that CX, that consumer experience, um, from beginning to end. So why are you making me go through your hotel lobby? If I want to go to your restaurant, you know, why not, if you're really going to make a go of it, why not make an investment for the facade of the restaurant area? It doesn't have to be a drastic shift from the overall look and feel of the hotel itself, but gosh, it really should make a statement. Um, and I think that should be a challenge to not just architects, um, but the people who are guiding them. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to walk into the restaurant and out of the restaurant and never realize I was in a hotel. And at the same regard, I want to be able to stay in the hotel and walk into the restaurant without having to go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's such an easy solution to a, to a, to a, a problem for a full service or even a more of a fast casual experience where you don't need I mean, fast casual and QSR. I mean, you mm. don't really need a st- staff to do that. Yeah. Um, and you could have a really strong breakfast and a strong lunch and forget about dinner. Right. Um, if you make some of those shifts, but yeah. too often, I mean, <laughs> there, there, there's a, uh, a creative leader, uh, out there. His name is Stefan Sagmeister. Um, and he, uh, wrote a book or, or curated and wrote a book called, uh, beauty. And I went to go see him talk about it. And, you know, in all honesty, I think he's a little bit of a navel gazer himself and, you know, I don't buy into everything he says, but I found his talk, the, the way he started his talk, very interesting. He pulled the entire audience uh, based um, on a slide. So the first slide was uh, shapes. Which one of these shapes are the most beautiful? And it was a, a circle, a rectangle, a triangle, and I don't know, some other polygon. Inevitably, people... Um, you know, raised their hand and they were kind of all over the place. He's like, which one's the ugliest? And then people said the rectangle. Okay, cool. Then he went to a colors slide. And I think he had like four or five colors up there. He's like, which one of these is the most beautiful? And of course there were some arguments. He's like, which one's the most ugly or the ugliest, I should say. And everyone agreed that it was brown. He's like, great. So we can all agree that brown rectangles are the ugliest things in the world. And then he starts clicking through slide after slide of the buildings in which we live that are all brown rectangles. Mm -hmm. And when I see 
hotels being built, I laugh now because I'm like, it's a brown rectangle mm-hmm. because it's not offensive, but my gosh, it's ugly. Um, oh God. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's, yeah. It appeals to everybody and nobody at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> that is not offensive, but right. not quote unquote, not offensive does not win today. Um, I'm surprised it ever really won, but it certainly doesn't make ways. It's not worth talking about. It's not remarkable, which is a word that we use very much on purpose. And those are the three components of something that drives the desire to go try a place. So is it is it the food, the design of... I don't mean the interior design, the look and the feel of sure. the place. I know that's obviously important. What I mean is, is the the... The look and feel of the logo, the look and feel of of the experience that you're trying, the the outward experience that you're trying to invoke. Um, so, food, outward design of of logo and experience, or something else, maybe that I'm not hitting on. What's like in what order would you go? Yeah, um, I mean, I got to say that the food has to be good, um, but it doesn't have to be great. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because all the things surrounding the food that create the, a full experience, uh, something that's well orchestrated can actually change the flavor of food. I could put, you know, a meal, let's say from Bacchanalia here in Atlanta, which is a, one of the best restaurants in here. If I put that in a McDonald's dining room, you wouldn't think it was nearly as good. Hmm. Um, and so Yes, the interiors uh, are important. Yes, the logo and the brand identity elements and the uh, menu systems, it really all matters. And it should matter, you know, just just as a, a human. If you met a human who was incredibly brainy, uh, very, uh, very cerebral in the way they presented themselves, but they were dressed like a vagrant, you would have a sort of disbelief in what they were saying. Right. You know, and so I cringe when I see restaurants throw down a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper in front of me and expect me to pay $35 for a meal. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. So do you put this amount of care into what you're doing back of house? Because mm-hmm. if so, I don't want to pay $35 for this. Right. Um, and so I think it really is everything and not one thing in particular. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you were to give advice to somebody who was starting like a listener of the show who was realized that there was a problem in their restaurant and they wanted to try to tackle it. Mm. Where would they go first? What's the thing that they would like, okay, I'm making a plan. This is the first priority. Yeah. I mean, I think first priority is figuring out what, what is this thing supposed to be? Um, Mm -hmm. and, and starting to make a commitment into some sort of cuisine direction and new American is not the opposite. Opportunity. <laughs> Let me just tell you that. A better um, burger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, look, you can service your guests with a general, um, a general menu as room service, you know, and and that's great. And you should, you know, because honestly, if I was in uh, let's say, I don't know, Memphis, Tennessee, I I'm probably pretty barbecued out. Mm. Um, and so like having just a nice fish dish might be really a good breath of fresh air for, you know, a lunch or something like that. But, um, when it comes to the, to the actual restaurant, make a commitment, man, like commit to something and then start to identify where things are off the mark, knowing that everything matters, even the outside landscaping. I mean, nothing worse than rolling up to a place that has dead plants, you know, because everything's an indicator 
it's either a reason to believe or a reason to disbelieve the claims, mm-hmm. everything, you know? And so, you know, even if there's that little piece of wallpaper up in the top corner that started peeling back, you got to fix it. And it seems innocuous, but it's not, um, right. you know, and if I, you I think even see it, if you, so even many see people it. can't even see it. Like they, they yeah. just, that stuff, especially if you're in the same room day in and day out, you stop seeing things. Yeah. There's gotta be a, re- a way to reset your brain on it or, just bring in an outside person um, to have them take a walk through and mark some things that were jolting and start with the jolts. Like, wow, I was really surprised to to find that your heat lamps were out, you know, or something like that. Right, right. And it's like, oh, well, we don't really use them. Okay, great. Then get rid of them. Because to me, that's a reason to disbelieve. Um, you know, I wish I wish there was an easy fix, but like with most things, it's it there's not, you know, it's uh it's too complex to easily fix. And that's why nobody does it uh, quickly or many don't do it well or at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Because it takes the effort. And that may be the opportunity is shut it down. Mm-hmm. You know, have a kitchen that services the guests. You can try opening a virtual restaurant out of the back of the of the hotel where you don't need to do anything cosmetic um, to the restaurant itself. And that could actually realize some uh, efficiencies, but also mm. profitability. Mm. Um, you know, for those that don't know, virtual restaurants are say. basically restaurants that uh, exist on third-party delivery and online ordering only. So they don't really have a uh, traditional brick and mortar. And so what's great about that is if you already have the kitchen, fantastic. Maybe turn that that uh, front um, dining area just into another banquet, banquet area mm-hmm. and just run virtual kitchens, service your uh, private events, service your guests call it a day. Um, that might be a good opportunity or a good shift to make. Right. It's definitely something to think about. There's no doubt. Um, yeah. As you're going out, if, if you were going into a new area and you had to do a comp set analysis for uh, a, a new restaurant concept, mm-hmm. how would you go about that? What, what are some, you know, a little bit of the secret sauce or, or a look behind the curtain for uh, those that don't really know how to analysis? attack it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, traditionally, what we've done is we 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 take to Yelp, we take to Google, um, we start searching uh, for what's out there. It's very, very, very tedious. Um, at the risk of dropping a <laughs> self-serving plug, um, <laughs> I have some really good friends that have a startup called Born, mm. and they have taken all that research and made it literally the click of a button for all intents and purposes. Mm. Um, the amount of data coming out of this company and out of their system is it would have taken us eight to 16 weeks to amass it. And we'd probably still not have enough. Um, so I'm really, really bullish, um, pun intended for those that know the logo of vigor, uh, really (laughs) bullish on that company and what they're doing. Cause I think it's going to help change the game to, to realize concepts that work because the competitive data is there. Is it only F and B that they do all only restaurants, only restaurants. Okay. Um, it just happens to have a very specific uh, touch with hotel F&B because everything that they're doing is based on address. Well, here's the great thing. The hotel knows where their, where their address is, you yeah, know? Right. And so um, there's a whole other side of Born where it's like, I got a concept, where do I go? But this first step that they've launched, um, tell me your address and we'll tell you everything you need to know about it. Wow. Is it- yeah, uh, Foot traffic, B- all that stuff. B-O-R-N dot com. Like oh that. yeah, I'm sorry. It's actually B as in boy O R N E. Um and it's bornreport.com. Not so shameless plug there, but I'll, I'll definitely link that in the yeah. show notes for people to check it out cuz that could be really yeah. valuable. Yeah, I get no I mean, 
I have a little piece of the pie, but we're, <laughs> they're not in a situation where um, they're they're uh, turning profit right now. They're they're still early, but it's mm-hmm. very much worth looking at. Yeah, um, yeah. Outside of that, what you're doing is you're going to old school means. Um, you're scouring Yelp, uh, checking TripAdvisor, checking even Google, running some searches. There are other um, companies out there that I think start to amass some of that data as well. Uh, it is a bit tedious, though. And when we when we evaluate competitors, we're looking at, uh, of course, cuisine. What's the average star, you know, of their online reviews? What seems to be their number one go to? Um, what are the general commentary around those brands? What is the feeling? And then we also try to pull out uh, the personality traits. So we like to use three personality traits uh, to represent brands. Um, and and you can. You can have a fun time doing that too. We like to talk about characters or celebrities that are representative of those traits. Um, and that'll help establish another layer, which is there may be, let's say, 10 barbecue restaurants. So when I say barbecue, you may go to uh, reclaimed wood, um, old rusted corrugated metal, sort of peanuts on the floor, maybe um, that kind of vibe. But if you have 10 of those and you still want to do barbecue, our question would be, why not go super modern? Mm. You know, or why not go tropical, add in some Hawaiian flair, you know, something to set aside and make this unique. And then from those personality traits, you can start to evaluate your product mix. So rather than just your standard Texas barbecue, why don't you start adding in more new school flavors, maybe Asian flair and start to give it a reason to be in there? Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. And and back to your point earlier about uh, emulating versus doing something a little bit different. And emulating versus being inspired by. And that's yeah. that's the rub, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, like no pun intended talking about barbecue. Yeah, I mean, maybe <laughs> pun intended cuz maybe rubs can be delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um it, question just just came to mind. Is there a way um to figure out what potential profitability might be in your comp set analysis, how other restaurants in the area are doing. Is there any secret sauce there? Um, yeah, I mean, some of it is befriending those people and quite honestly, just asking where they're at. Hmm. And, and I think that's actually a really important thing to check off. I, I think this, there's an old school mentality of competition and what that means. Um, and, and for a lot of folks, competition is something that you're meant to squash. Um, in the restaurant industry, that is like the worst thinking in the world in my opinion, because these guys are your friends. Like you guys are working together, actually. Um, If you can bring a bunch of people to an area collectively through your collective efforts, that's point number one. And then someone may be hungry for my barbecue restaurant. Someone may be hungry for your hamburger restaurant. After that, it's it's up to the whims of the person. Um, A good case in point of that, I have friends up in Baltimore, Maryland, Um, they opened a restaurant called Bandito's, tacos and tequila, you know, a lot of fun, party, party. And then about a year and a half later, they bought the place across the street and they opened up a bourbon kind of uh, smoked brisket smokehouse kind of concept. And then right next door to Bandito's, they opened up a gastropub that sold big fat burgers and sandwiches, a lot of beer, Hmm. you know, and in looking at this, you would like, those guys are idiots. They're poaching their own customers. They're not. Mm-mm. All three of those places are bringing a massive amount of people down there. And then from there, it's like, do I want tacos? Do I want smoke? Do I want, you know, uh, burgers? Yeah. And and then, of course, there are other restaurants around that area, too. So you got to kill the idea of competition and start befriending these people because you guys can share and, and collectively um, you have the same goals. 
Yeah. Yeah. The more interesting outlets that bring people into the area, the more, the more customers that that can draw in, the better it is for everybody, right? You're not poaching. That's, that's a really good point. Um, are there any best practices that uh, a food and beverage manager in a hotel might be able to employ that you've used successfully in the independent world? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the number one is just remove the word hotel. Mm. Stop. Just don't even acknowledge that the hotel is a part of it and really focus in on creating a best in class restaurant experience that happens, of course, to exist in a hotel. And that really is a mentality shift. You know, you see people, I've been in situations where they tried to optimize the uniforming. That way someone didn't have to have a different uniform than a hotel. Yeah. So when you, when you get people who are operationally minded are really good at optimizing budgets, but budget optimization sometimes is a really bad move for the experience. And I think you need to know where that fine line is. Um, for instance, shared plates, like actual plating, like OSNE, that may be a good idea. You might be able to use the restaurant's plating for your banquets, mm-hmm. depending on the type of hotel. It could also be a terrible idea. I mean, could you imagine eating, um, you know, having a fine dining experience and having to eat off the same plateware that you would use for a banquet? Right. Um, you know, in, in let's say a, uh, I don't know, a La Quinta. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, mm, yep. maybe, maybe spend the money and get different plating here. Yeah. Um, and, and same same thing. So let's just say at the La Quinta, you have a, a Mexican restaurant with very festive plateware. Is that what you want for weddings? Yeah. You know? Um, and so I think it's just having those conversations and it all starts with a, a really strong strategy. That strategy is the lens to evaluate the decisions because there are places to optimize. Um, of course, in, in the P-Mix, there's places to optimize, but not all optimization is good optimization. <laughs> <laughs> I can literally hear F&B managers screaming at the top of their lungs right now going, yes, yes. (laughs) That's what I've been telling my financial controller. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing too is to think about um, the the traffic flow, not just from the consumer standpoint, but from your team. And so um, I have a friend, his name's Tobin Ellis. He's actually really well respected in the bar design world. Um, So he'll be saying yes right now. But uh, one of the things that he uh, spoke about a few years back at a conference, and it just stuck with me, is the sheer idiocy of making the back of the bar symmetrical. And huh. that's a really good example, but you can apply it to the to the front of house as well in the floor. But if you think about it, a bartender's success is dependent on muscle memory a lot of times. Their ability to engage, their ability to um, have good interactions with guests is dependent on their knowledge of their space of their workstation. So if you have something symmetrical, uh, a bar, which architects love to do, you know, it's like, Oh, it's the same here. And then Mm -hmm. it's opposite over here. How nice to look at except if I'm on the right side of the bar tonight and I got my flow and you put me on the left side, everything's the opposite. And you could probably literally count the inefficiency in time uh, and you're fumbling and you can't make eye contact because you don't know where your things are. But the same is also true for the front of house. And thinking about your team's experience will bleed over into how the guest's experience overall is uh, felt and and, uh, and uh, digested. Um, if you have someone that if you have a very poor flow and things don't make sense, you know, food takes longer to get out, accidents happen, more plates are broken, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good points. Um, 
two questions for you related yeah. to trends uh, before we wrap. Um, what are you seeing from a food perspective that if somebody's looking to do a change in concept that might get them some legs going kind of into the future? Um, you mean like literal cuisine? Yeah, literal cuisine. Like, mm-hmm. is, are there any any inspirations, any anything that is starting to get big in North America um, that may be worth looking at? Yeah, yeah. So I'll first start by saying beware of pioneers. Uh, most of them died and some resorted to cannibalism. So um, <laughs> make, make sure that what you pioneer is something that is at least close to uh, the American palate. You know, we don't need another burrito concept. We don't need another burger concept. That's not to say that there isn't a space to innovate there. It's just, we don't need another same, same, um, some cuisines that I'm seeing really take off is a reclamation of tapas and what that means. Um, there, there's a, there's a style of food called a bieria. I think I'm probably saying that very wrong. It's a, a deep, deeply marinated meat. Um, it's very delicious. And it, I think it's a Spanish or Brazilian, I forget which. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has been claimed to really take off this year. And I think it needs a little more time to get there. Mm-hmm. But um, tapas is a great way to accentuate a bar and increase uh, check averages in a way that is very aligned with the consumers of today. Yeah. Um, you know, don't want big plates, don't want big meals. Give me a lot of a little, or a little bit of a lot, I should say. <clears throat> you know what interests me? And I, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, you're good. You, yeah. you, you bring up a really good point. I, I, I mean, I've had this conversation with so many people in the industry. I've I've said it myself. I've experienced it myself. I know listeners have it as well. You go to Europe and they're doing this kind of thing exceptionally well. The food mm-hmm. is great. It's inexpensive in the back. And from the, the tapas idea is what you're, what you're referring to. You, you can get these little plates coming out to the table, you know, every time you order a drink. Uh, and you're just, in some cases, you're just sort of getting racked up a, a few bucks a plate that comes out. It, when you're in Europe, it'd be more over here. Um, and I've always wondered why so many places over here have such a hard time executing on that, even yeah. though if you pulled a thousand people, 900 of them would be all about that concept. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's about finding the talent uh, back of house that can really make it happen. Um, and I think just innovation, you know, like for instance, I, I was speaking to a concept, I was trying to get them to buy into like a slider concept, um, or at least a very heavy slider menu for that, for that very reason. And their words were, our cooks won't do it, which is mind blowing. I'm like, fire your cooks. Like, are wow. you kidding me? You're going to let the cooks decide what's happening <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, sliders are a great mechanism to deliver a lot of different flavors for people yeah. that aren't ready to commit to like one solid hamburger experience. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think tapas, small plates are, are huge. Uh, that oxymoron is very much intended. Um, the other one too is, um, Asian cuisine, specifically buns and dumplings. Mm. Um, so, you know, we have concepts like wow bao and some others have tried to come. They kind of went as well, but it's a really interesting uh, food. There's there's a brand out of Brooklyn called Brooklyn Dumping Shop that is just killing it right now. They're selling hand over fist franchisees, and it's all based on an automat format. So the automats, for those that don't know, were basically a bank of drawers. And essentially, back in the uh, 20s and 30s, you'd go in, you'd throw in 25 cents, and you'd grab a pie or you'd grab a sandwich that was made. It's kind of like the old school vending machine, but much bigger. It was a whole room. Well, they've revived this with a huge tech backbone, and it's really taking off. And I, I think the food is delicious, too. And then one that I haven't heard of, but seeing what I'm seeing with consumers, um, the folks that are starting to really – well, there's two things, right? So baby boomers are 
uh, in the process of reclaiming absolute dominance when it comes to the spend. They're getting into retirement age. Uh, they're, they're, they're tapping into their 401ks and they're looking to flex and relax and enjoy things again. So that's one thing that's truly happening. The other thing is uh, young millennials and Gen Y um, have severe cases of Napoleon syndrome. I'm sorry, Columbus syndrome. Hmm. Um, where they've are, where they're discovering things that have already been discovered, but they think they discovered it. And so huh. I think because of that, there is an argument to be made of a reclamation of classic dishes that have been kind of forgotten. So think beef Wellington, hmm. you know? So a lot of people haven't had beef Wellington. It's not easy to make, but my God, is it delicious yeah. when it's done right. Mm-hmm. And if you, I bet you, I guarantee if you ask a younger individual, when I say younger, I'm talking late 20s, early 30s, if they've ever had beef Wellington, they may have heard of it, but they're probably answer is no. Right. Um, yeah, where do you get it these done. days? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I think last time I actually had it, it was fantastic, was in Brussels, Belgium. Oh, wow. Um, so I think finding some of these traditional sort of forgotten dishes, reclaiming them, I think could be a really big opportunity for uh, an enterprising full service restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that's impressive because you're not seeing it on menus, but that's not because it's not good. It's just people kind of forgot about it. It's a great idea. And our, our whole existence is made up of this. I mean, how we forgot what concrete was for a very long time until San Francisco burned. Right. You know, and if someone's like, Hey, there's this stuff that the Egyptians made. <laughs> I feel like we should use that. Like, <laughs> right, right. You know? So I think it's, yeah. it's time because the, the, the baby boomers know about it and they probably have at least had it. Um, and so it'd be a good nostalgia trigger for them. Uh, and the younger folks, they'll love it. You know, there, there's some good foods out there that have been forgotten. The, uh, the last trend I want to ask you about is tech. And, mm. you know, this, this last 18 months, two years, this is, I do believe that this has been a bit of a crucible for people that are working on things that are going to revolutionize our industry mm-hmm. completely. Um, there's no doubt tech is going to play a huge part of that. The most interesting application of QR codes that I've seen, and, and you know, are they going to continue to have their day after all of this? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Who knows? But you know, being able to pay your check at your table via QR code is is one of those interesting ideas that when you see it in practice, it's so obvious. Yeah. But you don't. It's sort of like it's right in front of you. You don't really see that that is is a good application for it. Um, is there anything that you're seeing in the industry that may have legs as we get out of this? Yeah, yeah. I don't think QR codes will... The issue that we have with QR codes was adoption. Adoption hindered by lack of technological um, uh, simplicities. So now all of our phones have a QR code reader on it. You know, before that, you had to actually download one. So, um, you know, the pandemic did bring QR codes to the forefront and forced adoption. So I I think we'll we'll see them not go. But the question becomes, what happens when I scan it? So I think innovation of, um, like you just mentioned, payment through QR code. I think augmented reality has yet to even be scratched. Uh, The Mm -hmm. surface of it has barely touched. Um, Accentuating an experience and taking people on a journey um, triggered by a QR code. Uh, is a big one where they can actually experience another layer of the restaurant experience um, through their through the li- literal lens of their of their phone's camera. And what does that look like? And what happens? So you know, take that tropical barbecue restaurant I I talked about that doesn't exist yet. Um, 
what if more tropics were added? What if sunsets or uh, birds or things like that, like just happened in or around there? How beautiful would that be? You can create other worlds like this. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, I, I think a big one is going to be convergence. Um, we have a lot of pieces out there, technolo technological pieces, and not a lot of pieces that talk to each other um, or come baked in. And so I think you're going to see acquisitions and I think you're going to see um, merging the technologies to create like super uh, suites. Um, a brand that's doing uh, doing this already is Q. It's a POS system. Mm -hmm. um, and they were built with API forward. So it's not something they tacked on and they are built to inter, uh, integrate. And I think integration is the key at this point. And then outside of that, you have some um, outliers. So the uh, Brooklyn Dumping Shop, again, they, there's a... You know, the automat, which I think is fantastic for concepts that don't require human interaction, but still want to produce great food. Um, and I think all of this creates a really good scenario where we're shifting the uh, labor needs. And I don't really like the word labor, but, hmm. you know, we'll use the vernacular, I guess, um, to not just folks who know how to write down an order, um, but folks who are actually tech technology folks who actually know to troubleshoot technology, um, fix um, and basically a higher skilled uh, labor than we have required in the past. Hmm. And then I think uh, finally uh, for this is my own quote. I made this up for every action. There is an equal and opposite reaction. That's oh, me. Huh. I, I never said heard that, that before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all me. So, um, <laughs> you know, with that, as we get more and more down this journey of technologically uh, integrated, supported or fully baked experiences, the need for really high touch, really well done full service will only get greater. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, that's something we can't forget. There is a space for all of it. Um, but half-baked isn't going to work. Um, you know, it's got to be that high touch Danny Meyer mm. famous experience, um, you know, because we want that. Humans still need human touch, man. Um, yeah. You know, but technology fits another need and it does align with our behavioral shifts that have been a long time coming, honestly. Yeah. Um, Joseph, I appreciate you giving a, a look behind the curtain and some, so, so, you know, maybe even a look in the crystal ball a little bit. Um, That's right. <laughs> as to what we can expect out of this. Um, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Yeah, you can find uh, my company, vigorbranding.com is a place to go. And we're on most channels at Vigor Branding. Um, I, my new book should be out by the time this is out there. It's called hey. The Bullhearted Brand. And so some of those things I was talking about with strategy, I lay it all out in that book. Um, no holds barred. Everything's out there in my whole brain in, in 275 pages. And you can learn more about that at bullhearted.com. Or sorry, .co, .co. Bullhearted.co. All right. I'll .co, uh, yeah. make sure to link everything. We talked about a lot of different companies. I'll link everything in the show notes for everybody. Awesome. But, uh, no, uh, this was a lot of fun, Joseph. Appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's wonderful. This was my episode with Joseph Zala. You can learn more about him at vigorbranding.com. You can see the full interview on YouTube. Just search The Proven Principles Podcast. And you can learn more about the show on our website, theprovenprinciplespodcast.com. Finally, do you need help with a project or just someone to work with on a tough problem in your hotel or restaurant? If I can be of help to you in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can book a free call with me by going to knowinghospitality.com slash contact. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. For past episodes, show notes, or if you've got a story that might make a great episode, head on over to theprovenprinciplespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, even on YouTube. And if you haven't already, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Proven Principles Podcast.